Good morning. We're in Isaiah chapter 51. If you have a church Bible, that's on page 395. Do you really believe that you have everything you need right now to change the world? Because if I, if I read the Great Commission, I'm sure most people wouldn't even blink. But inwardly, my guess if I were to pass the mic around, for many of us, the inward thought would be, you know, if I could, if I could memorize one more verse, or if I could read one more book, on culture making and discipleship, then, then I'd be ready. Or, you know, if I could just beat that one sin, then, then I'd be ready. Or maybe you're not even within a million miles of that. Maybe for you it's just, if I could just get that hour of sleep back, then, then I'd be ready. And what that adds up to, over time, is a lifetime of tension where that carrot is just out of reach. And you're chasing it, and you're chasing it. It's a lifetime of tension. And what I want to tell you, if that's you, is you're not alone. And I don't just mean you're not alone here. I mean, throughout history, God's people have felt this very tension. If you've been following our sermon series through Isaiah, you know Israel has been aware of God's promises. You know, they've, they've heard God would, would save them and save their nation and even as we read last week, he would even save the world. But yet, there they sat in a corner of Babylon, looking not only down at the chains around their wrists, but the greater chains that made them slaves to sin. And God has just been making them painfully aware that they're not ready. How would this mission of salvation be possible? How would they do it? The question we ask ourselves, how will we do it when one hour of sleep wrecks me? The mixture of joy and tension for them was unbelievable. And this morning, their joy and tension is going to reach its highest point yet. As God rolls out his plan of salvation even further, showing his people their active part in this plan. And yes, how God will make them ready for it. This salvation plan will somehow do three things for God's people. It will satisfy God's wrath completely. 
It will transform them and it will send them out then finally into the nations. That's your outline for more or less. This morning, God will paint a future for Israel that we now live in. A reality where people who were once under God's wrath will finally wake up and they'll go. And so I'm going to read verses 17 through 23 of Isaiah 51. First point in your outline. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her. Among all the sons she is born, there is none to take her by the hand. Among all the sons she is brought up, these two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord your God, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over, and you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. So the first thing that should stand out to you is that God is telling his chosen people to stand up, but they can't. This verse, verse 17, the first verse right out of the gate calls the people who God has chosen Drunk people who have drunk God's wrath to the point where they are staggering. They drank all they possibly could. And they're finished. They're in no condition to take part in this mission. Have you ever seen a drunk person try to stand up? I lived in a frat house, and I saw this. It's sad. When a man has a night of drinking, you can just strike out the entire next day for him. But, what I just described... That is not within a thousand miles of Israel's condition. Because it's much worse than a night of alcohol, as verse 21 says. And the bigger point is that the problem goes well beyond one guy in a frat house. 
Look at verse 18. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. So, it's not like one person is drunk. And it's not like the whole frat house is drunk. And it's not even like the whole city is drunk. They're all drunk. And it gets even worse. Everyone throughout history, none of her sons is free from this condition. None of them could withstand this cup of wrath that God has given to them for their rebellion. In verse 19, this has left everyone in such a state. Okay, so it's like God is lining up Adam and Eve in their sin. And he says, drink this cup. And they drink it and they drink it until they're full up. And they say, I can't drink anymore. And he says, okay. Then he lines up Abraham. And Noah. And Moses. All the people which the kids' Bibles are saying, be like them. The bad ones anyway. And he lines up King David. And everybody on down to Israel in Babylon. And they all drink. And none of them can stand up. And this cup is not empty. The purpose of this scene for God's people is to fully expose the real problem. This is people. It's not simply that they have sinned and that God is punishing them and is saying, okay, I'm done. That's not what's happening. What's happening is that all of them combined cannot take the punishment God has rightfully assigned to them. And I think we forget that when we look at people. We think naturally, maybe within an hour of getting out of here, the people are good and God can make them great. Or maybe for the frat guys, they're bad and God can make them good. But this text, as some theologians have rightfully pointed out, is saying people are dead and only God can make them live. That's why what the Lord does next is so surprising. Look at verses 22 and 23. Look at what God does to these people who can drink no more, though they deserve to. He pleads the cause of his people. And then he takes the cup of wrath from them and he says, you'll never drink from this again. And then he pours it out over the enemies of Israel until there's not a drop left. That's what God does for people. 
Now, we don't know exactly who these enemies are from the text. All we know is that God is preparing his people for this mission by first taking away the cup of wrath that they couldn't take. And he's exhausting it on their enemies. So in this, to prepare them for the mission, his justice is being satisfied. He's not just cutting people slack. Somebody's getting it. And yet, somehow, his people survive, and they're called not only to wake up, but he stands them up. How does this apply? Know that if you are under salvation, God's wrath, which applied to you, does not anymore. At all. None. Don't think to to hide the little sins that you have and you think nobody else has. Don't sleep it off. You You don't have to try to outweigh the bad with the good or put an extra 20 in the plate. You don't have to do that. When you do that, you're basically attempting to take the cup of wrath back and say, no, I got this. You don't. You can't. God took care of it. Instead of doing that, look at the transferal process that's happening right here. God is telling his people that this will be a one-time event. And the best of all is that it is fully dependent on the work of God and not man. And that would be generous enough, wouldn't it? For God to just let people live. Or to just leave them there with a hangover. That sounds great compared to the alternative. But God doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at taking away his wrath and standing up his hungover people. He's going to give them something amazing. And that's point two. Salvation. It's here. Let me read the first ten verses. Chapter 52. And again, God says, Awake, awake! Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall be no more come into you the circumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. And be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck. O captive daughter of Zion, for thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here declared the Lord, seeing that my people are taking away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people 
shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations. And all the end of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So God again calls his people to wake up. But here, they're not doing it as drunkards the morning after. Have you ever seen a drunk person trying to get dressed? They can't. But according to verse 1, these people now will somehow be made holy. They will look different. They will live by a different standard. The language here, especially the clothing they wear and the removal of unclean things that you read, even suggests that they will be made into priests. If you'd like to read more on that, just write down Exodus 28. And according to verse 2, their shackles will be removed. So God here, after telling his people to wake up to the reality that his wrath is being removed, he's now telling his people to wake up to a reality where he is giving them both holiness and freedom. And they deserve Neither. That is what will be. That is the gift of salvation. But to explain it, because this is no easy task. This is not simple. To explain it, we actually have to look back at their chains for a moment. Look at verses 3 and 4. And they explain this from the Lord's perspective there was some somewhat confusing imagery. First, look at verses 3 and 4. God's people were sold for no money. And because of that, money will not be the means by which they are freed. All this means is that since they were willing captives, they offered themselves freely There was no transaction. And what that actually means is that the Lord still owns them. But it also means that the problem is not a money problem. The problem is a lot deeper. Their problem, which we've read all throughout Isaiah, is that they hate the Lord. 
So if you free them from Babylon, guess what they're going to do? They're going to hate the Lord with more money. This tension is all over verse 5. Look at it. The Lord's name has been despised. That's why if you pray for the Lord to give you a job, but you can't help but hate the Lord, he's being merciful in not giving you the job. Because then you'll hate him with more money. That's mercy. But as for this situation, the redemption issue, the redemption the Lord promises in verse 3 has to come by some other way. Money won't get you out of it, Israel. And the tension would build here for the reader. How is this possible? And the method isn't given to us clearly yet. That comes later. But the result is. The result is found in the first half of verse 6. Therefore, my people shall know my name. And that sounds like a strange answer. But let me explain. God's people have no value because they've given themselves away. But the Lord's name is going to be the value. Knowing his name will be directly connected to their redemption. It's so much deeper than tangible. Something much deeper is going to happen. And here's where we really have to lean in because verse 6 actually takes it even further. The second half of the verse says, Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. And then he says, Here I am. We actually see personhood connected to the name of the Lord. And that doesn't sound significant. But here's what's happening. They will be redeemed because they will know his name and they will know his name because he will stand in front of them and say, here I am. So this salvation will not only cause the Lord to reclaim his people, he's going to reacquaint himself to his people. It's all going to happen at once. That's what the redemption is going to look like. Now, anyone familiar with the whole Bible and knows that this servant talked about is Jesus should be making really big connections right here. But Israel is left in suspense. Who is this servant? How is this possible? Isaiah builds the suspense even more next with imagery showing Israel that this servant and the Lord himself and even their mission are all woven together. And Isaiah does that here next with a vision that will point forward a little bit 
but then a lot all the way to the end when the Lord will come home with his people. Look at verse 7, and I'll try to explain it because we're talking about really big stuff here. Verse 7, the words of this verse, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now that applies to this coming servant. But according to Paul, centuries later in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, he quotes these words as part of his mission to plant the early church. So, it's as if this servant will come bringing salvation to Israel and then God's people made holy and free will somehow be part of that mission too. That start to make a little more sense? And Isaiah then gives us a glimpse of the end of this mission in verses 8 through 10. And this servant will somehow be there too. In verse 8, the Lord will have a homecoming of sorts with his people in Zion. In this final victorious city, he will be present with them in verse 9, and these people will represent the ends of the earth in verse 10. This is a picture of when the mission is over. And as I read this, One thing that stood out to me is that in some spots, it is really hard to tell the difference between the Lord God and his appointed servant. They might be connected a lot more than we think. Huh. Now, I realize that this might seem a little confusing to you if you're not familiar with the Bible. And Israel would have been very confused. Because Isaiah is showing the reader multiple future times all at once. But all that's really being said here for Israel to apply is to wake up. Because not only will the Lord's cup of wrath be taken away, but he will give them holiness and freedom And that they will be reacquainted with the Lord because he'll one day actually stand in front of them saying, here I am. And he will even stand with them in victory when the mission has finally been completed. The level of joy and tension would be unbelievable for Israel as they read this. And to think, all they wanted was their houses back. All they wanted was their jobs back. Maybe their their families back. And God, by his power, through this servant, is going to give them so much more. And what they anticipated, we have. How does this apply? Know that you are made holy and free by the Lord to the end. Now, most Christians wouldn't wouldn't blink at this. 
But I want to clarify something. I want you to consider the order of this application. What it's saying is that if you're under this salvation, go back to point one, God first removes his wrath and then he gives his people holiness and freedom and reacquaints himself and gives them a global mission and fulfills it. In other words, all of these things, your holiness and freedom, the mission being done, your acquaintance with God happen in response to God's initiative in solving the big problem. In other words, you aren't holy so that God will accept you. You are holy because he already has. And don't we forget this. This will fundamentally change how you go about this mission. That carrot in front of you will disappear. And it also means that the process of doing it correctly, the process of the mission, the process of becoming more holy is a process. That removal of wrath, that's one time. Everything else, that might take a while. Your foundation is that the Lord has taken away his wrath and he is the one guiding you to the end of the promise. And in that knowledge, finally, we are equipped to go. That's point three. Verses 11 and 12. Go as priests of the Lord. Depart. Depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste. And you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And fittingly, finally... After all this head knowledge, we end this text with a new exodus for Israel. Where someday, the Lord's people, with the wrath of the Lord removed, are made holy and free by the name of the Lord, and they finally go. And that's us. And they'll go in two ways. First, in verse 11, they will go in holiness. This new life comes with new living, as we'll see in verse 11. They should act differently than the world around them. And one, thought, one small thing I'll point out here is that these people, these priests, will bear the vessels of the Lord. Did you see that? So it's not that the Lord is far off from them as Israel claimed all throughout Isaiah. And it's not even like the Lord is just near like when Israel carried around the Ark of the Covenant. 
but the Lord will be within his people. How could people not stand out if that were the case? How would you not look different? And second, they will go in confidence, not hurried, not in flight or fear, as we see in verse 12. The reason why will be that the Lord, as we also see in verse 12, will not be merely in them, but the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And there's language here, which I think alludes to the Trinity. God inside you, God in front of you, God behind you, it's three. And that's amazing. But the point is total confidence. Because you're completely protected on all sides by the Lord himself. How does this apply? Go in holiness and confidence. That one was easy. Do you forget that you're holy? Is that carrot back out in front of you? Wake up and don't return to the things that tasted so good when you were under God's wrath. Don't take the cup back. Do you lack confidence? It's probably because you've forgotten that the Lord is in you and in front of you and behind you. In short, if you are troubled, that makes sense because you are putting a burden on yourself that you were never meant to bear. And there's another application here for you. If you have not yet found yourself under this salvation. If that is you, please know there's no other way to be right before God. No amount of money in the offering. No amount of good deeds. The wrath is on you. And your only hope is God who's poured it out. And we know whose head that was poured out on. Friends, the same promise that the Lord made to Abraham is the same promise that would save people in Israel and around the world. The same promise that takes away God's wrath gives us holiness and freedom. The same promise that makes us know the name of the Lord actually walked among us and said, here I am. And the same promise will walk with us and be inside of us and behind us as we go as priests in holiness and confidence to the world.
And that same promise will be with us forever when the mission is complete. That promise is the Lord's appointed service, servant Jesus. And in our next sermon on Isaiah, we are going to finally look fully into his face. Now, do you believe that God has given you all you need to change the world? Let us believe it and let us wake up and go. Let's pray. God, we often accomplish so little for you because we put so much of the burden on our backs. We think we don't need help or we think that we're beyond help. And in response, so many of us look indistinguishable from the rest of the world. Lord, you knew this. Lord, you forgave your enemies on the cross and some of them were your own people. Lord, would you remind us of this great truth that your wrath has been taken away, that salvation is here, and that we are called to go on a mission that we can't lose. Amen.